1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, this is David Rothkopf, and I am coming to you, as we always do on Thursdays, from New York City, Uh, Typically, I'm joined on Thursday afternoons by Ryan Goodman, but he is in Europe on vacation with his family. I hope he's having a very good time. Uh, But I'm very fortunate to be joined on this episode by Barbara McQuaid, former United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, familiar to many of you from her multiple appearances on television, also teaching at the University of Michigan uh, School of Law. Uh, My wife is from Ypsilanti. And as as a University of Michigan graduate, and so every time I have the opportunity to say "Go Blue," I say "Go Blue." Welcome to the show, Barb.
0: Well, thanks so much. I'm always happy to talk to a fellow Wolverine supporter and uh, and and, neighbor in your wife in Ypsilanti.
1: Yes. Well, she said the first thing she her first goal in life was to get out of Ipsilanti and to get to Ann Arbor, (laughs) and so. Uh, well, uh, thank you for joining us. There's a lot to go over, just even picking up on the news from today. Uh, when you were the uh, U.S. attorney for the Eastern District, uh, and prior to that, you had done a great deal of work in the national security area, and it strikes me that your experience in that regard is particularly apposite to the discussion that we're having right now, because... Some of the work on, on on national security issues, particularly in the Eastern District of Michigan, had to do with foreign terror or ties of U.S. organizations to terrorists, because there's a series of issues in that area where that comes into play. But also in Michigan, there was you know a historically a, a sort of extremist militia presence. Uh, there 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 was an awareness of domestic terror. Uh, And I'm just wondering how you're reacting to this renewed awareness, uh, which has been framed by the head of the FBI and has certainly been framed by the news of the past week, that domestic terror is an issue that we need to take more seriously.
0: It's absolutely an issue that we need to take more seriously. You know, during the Obama administration, I sat on a group that was called the Domestic Terrorism Executive Committee, and it brought in representatives from a number of different government agencies to focus on the problem of domestic terrorism. There was also a strong effort on countering violent extremism. In the current administration, I know that they disbanded disbanded the countering violent extremism group after toying with changing its name to countering violent Islamic extremism. And so I, I think the focus Has moved away from domestic terrorism and really needs to move back. You know, in the '90s, we were doing a pretty good job when we had uh, Waco, we had Oklahoma City, Ruby Ridge, Um, and then when 9/11 occurred, all the focus seemed to go toward international terrorism. And I I think that uh, we're reminded why we need to be mindful of of both threats.
1: Now, you know, as as those who've been following the news, like our listeners do, um, know uh, the administration has resisted calls from uh, different parts of the government to uh, allocate more resources towards domestic terror issues. Uh, the White House reportedly rebuffed uh, DHS requests for resources. Um, uh, and 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 I'm wondering, as somebody who's very familiar with how this works, do you think we have adequate resources devoted to this issue? Um, or... Uh, Is the issue growing bigger uh, than we are able to handle?
0: I don't know. I think within each FBI field office around the country, they do a very good job of what they call assessing their own domain and understanding what the threats are within their own domain. And so regardless of what's going on at maybe a more political level and a more visible level, I think within each of those domains, they're being very careful to be aware of what threats exist, whether it's international or domestic terrorism. And in many districts, it's much more of a threat of domestic terrorism in rural areas than there is of any international terrorism. I think the area where we may have some challenges is in having proper laws on the books that we can use. Um, I think it's a really hard issue as to whether we need new legislation, but I can tell you from my experience that there are sometimes gaps in the law when you encounter one of these groups. As you mentioned, um, during my time as U.S. Attorney, we had a case involving a militia group in rural Michigan that was plotting to kill police officers. And we wanted to charge the group before they committed an act of violence. And that's always the goal in terrorism cases. You know, the FBI refers to it as left of boom, meaning if you had a timeline, boom is when the bomb goes off. You want to intercept the perpetrators before the bomb goes off. So on the timeline, that's left of boom. And so uh, we wanted to charge this group. We had an undercover involved. We were recording their conversations. We knew that they were not only planning but training, stockpiling weapons, building booby traps, all kinds of things that were really concerning. Um, And we wanted to take them down before they committed some act of violence. And we had a really difficult time finding a federal statute that worked for this group we ended up charging a crime of seditious conspiracy, which is a very clumsy statute with a very Orwellian-sounding name, and the case ultimately got dismissed by the court before it even went to the jury. And I've often thought that if we had had a domestic terrorism statute that made it a crime to commit an act of violence for one of those purposes like intimidating a civilian population or a government, um, then we might it, – it included an attempt in a conspiracy component, we could have used that statute to take down that group instead. So I do see a need, but I also see some of the challenges that could arise uh, with such a statute relating to civil liberties.
1: It's interesting, because I'm, I'm doing a book that sort of takes some of the issues associated with the Trump presidency and puts it in the context of history. And when you go back in U.S. history, in the first hundred years or so of American history, uh, a number of the cases of... Uh, uh, what treason were cases of treason against a state. Uh, and in fact, uh, whether it was Aaron Burr and his case of, of, of trying to separate out from the country where it was against Virginia, uh, or, I mean, there was a, there was a case in Rhode Island, there were cases in Pennsylvania and so forth. But, but the, there was this sense that protecting the government in each of the states um, was a similar priority to protecting the government on the national scale. Um, the head of the fbi has has recently called for or actually I think it was the FBI association that mm-hmm. called for changing the law in this regard. Um, uh, what is it what is it you think they're looking for?
0: Well, I think there there's currently a federal statute that defines domestic terrorism. It doesn't make it a crime. But by having that definition, it permits the FBI to use certain investigative techniques, and it also can be used for sentencing enhancements. And I think what I've read that they're calling for is making that a a crime so you could actually charge somebody with committing an act of violence that's perpetrated for the purpose of coercing a civilian population, intimidating a population, retaliating against a government, and that could be useful. You know, uh, sometimes other crimes are present and can be charged. For example, in the case of Dylan Roof in the South Carolina shooting they were able to use hate crime statutes because uh, the the victims were African-American. It occurred in the church. And so they had that crime available. That isn't always present. You don't always have those factors. Sometimes it's more of a political motive. And so having this statute, making it a crime to commit an act of violence in the name of a domestic cause could be um, a federal crime. I think that one actually is a, a fairly easy lift. And I wouldn't mind seeing that. I think the, place where it gets a little trickier is if you want to go left of boom, an inchoate offense, uh, you know, an attempt or a conspiracy. And that really is where the the whole ballgame is in terrorism. It's in prevention, disruption, preventing an attack before it occurs. And that's where I think it gets a little bit difficult. One of the bread and butter statutes for international terrorism is the crime of material support. There's a statute, 18 U.S.C. 2339B, That makes it a crime to give anything, any kind of material support, money, goods, services to a group if that group has been designated by the Secretary of State as a foreign terrorist organization. So Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS, al-Qaeda are all on that list. And so you don't even have to prove that the person knows that they're engaged in some sort of terror plot. It's a crime simply if they want to provide services to them, if they want to send them money and that gives a lot of leeway to the FBI to open investigations to people who are, you know, on Twitter talking about ISIS and al-Qaeda and saying they want to go do something for one of these groups. Um it allows them to open an investigation to insert an undercover and oftentimes to set up a sting operation where they think they're going to go, you know, press a button and blow up a uh community gathering and in fact it's it's a dummy bomb and they arrest the person for attempt Um, those kinds of operations are done all the time in the name of international terrorism. I think that's where it gets very tricky um, to start looking into domestic groups and designating them and putting them on a list like that so um, getting left of boom for terrorist domestic terrorism is going to be a little trickier than for international terrorism.
1: Well, also, it's further complicated by the fact that a number of these terrorists seem to be emulating or echoing comments that come from the President of the United States or even from those around the President of the United States. We've seen a couple of instances recently in court where defendants for acts that might fall under such a statute have said, well, I was uh inspired by the president i was doing what the president was saying um uh the in the case of the el paso attack there's a manifesto which uh uh, echoes some of the things that the president of the united states was saying uh uh today you even had the i think today the attorney general of the united states uh saying something to the effect of you know it's very satisfying to you know you know, see justice as it's portrayed in a movie like Death Wish or, you know, sort of vigilante justice. Well, if the president's saying there's an invasion, if the president's saying this is a great threat to the country, if the attorney general is saying vigilante justice is a great thing, uh, doesn't that complicate the life of the prosecutor who has to, uh, you know, go and, and suggest that, you know, what somebody who acts on that it, uh, uh, is doing is egregious?
0: Um, yes, you know, I think the president has not gone so far as to advocate for violence, um, and and so I, I think that's what makes it different from what people are doing. But no doubt, you know, Caesar Sayoc, who sent the pipe bombs and was sentenced recently to 20 years in prison, says that you know he found his light um, in in Donald Trump. It uh, gave him motivation, and he sought to send those pipe bombs to critics of Donald Trump. So he is certainly. Um, you know, agitating people. And, and, you know, he's in the law, we would say he's the but for cause, but probably not the proximate cause. Um, But, you know, when you've got uh, a very dry forest, it only takes a match to start the forest fire. And so you've got people with perhaps uh, mental health issues. You've got people with easy access to assault weapons. And you've got people who are sharing information with like-minded individuals on social media, normalizing that behavior, and then they see the leader of the free world say something that um, suggests that what they're doing is righteous, that could be all it takes to send them over the edge. And so I do think that the statements that President Trump is making are are really uh, irresponsible. And, um, you know, this has been brewing for a while is right after the election Uh, We do a lot of work. I did a lot of work in the attorney's office on on hate crimes, and we worked with a lot of our community leaders. And our local Anti-Defamation League chapter said that the number of complaints and bias incidents they were receiving after the election went up astronomically. And it was their perception that people who had harbored these thoughts were in the past too shamed to vocalize them, but now felt empowered and enabled by a president who was giving them license to do it.
1: Well, and of course that's compounded by the fact that you know we have this other factor which other countries don 't have, which is that there 's more guns than people in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president and uh, the g o p have tried to deflect and said what we really need to do is blame video games, or what we really need to do is 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 you know fix mental health. Uh, which certainly we could do, I, you know. It's 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 stigmatized and underfunded, and and there's there's a case to be made for that, uh, or that we should identify uh, red flags. But um, uh, we have seen uh, a substantial increase in the velocity of gun purchases in the United States in the past ten years. Uh, in the velocity of purchases of semi-automatic weapons, we've seen cases such as the case that took place in Dayton where. Uh, you know a twenty four year old guy you know ends up with the ability to fire a hundred rounds a minute or or some um, um, grotesquely out of proportion with any normal uh need for a firearm for hunting or other purposes uh but but able to get a you know this high capacity magazine um and you know on the on the, on the on the other side you have the Democrats pushing for uh uh a, a, you know, universal background checks, or uh, perhaps a, a an assault ban weapon assault ban weapon ban like we had in in 1994, which many at the time saw as kind of inadequate. And the question is, you know, you you've been involved in this world a long time. What what is the 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 what would work? What would make a difference? Does any do, would any of this stuff actually make a difference? With the gun problem we have, or do, or do you think more sweeping measures are, are required?
0: I don't know that we can solve every gun problem, but I think we could make a, a sizable difference with a few fixes. One, I think red flag laws are a good start. I don't think they're the be-all, end-all, because I think they're going to require a lot bureaucratically because of people's due process rights. I think it's going to require a diagnosis and a court order, before you can take guns away from someone who has mental illness. So it can be used in states where they're using it. They have cut back on suicides. That's something that they measure and they can keep track of. They say for something like every 30 of these orders they get, there's one fewer suicide. So that alone is a good thing. And you'll never know what mass shooting you might have prevented, but uh, I think it's a step in the right direction. But I think that alone is not enough. And when I see the GOP rallying around that – um, I, I worry that it's going to be kind of the um, the pretext, the fig leaf. There you go. We fixed it. It's all over. You know, the same way they rallied around bump stocks, I think it was such a minor fix that they were willing to give uh, in place of meaningful change. So I think that's one. I think universal background checks are important because everyone knows that if you want to avoid a background check, you can buy a gun at a gun show or on the Internet. And so every sale of gun, regardless of where it's sold – uh, can and should require a background check. It wouldn't. It. I don't think that would be all that hard. Um, and also, in terms of the assault weapons ban, uh, I was a prosecutor when the ban was in effect, and we prosecuted those cases, and then um, and saw it go away. Um, I I know from teaching a course on gun violence reduction with a medical school emergency room trauma doctor that when assault weapons are used in these uh, shootings, and they are in something like 70 or 80 percent of these mass shootings, people use assault weapons. The death toll will climb. He taught me this, and it's grisly to watch it play out, but he said you watch. When you read about one of these mass shootings, you'll see it say initially – that a few people are dead, that death toll is going to climb dramatically because when people get shot with automatic weapons, not only can the gunman take out a lot of people, but people can't save them because they bleed out very quickly and the hole that's created by these things is not a little bullet hole, It is a gaping wound the size of a grapefruit and often takes out an entire organ. So people get rushed to the hospital, but they die on the way or on the operating table because nothing can be done to save them. And and I have to say, in El Paso, I read the headline, three dead in El Paso, and I thought to myself what he said. Oh, boy, I wonder if that number is going to rise. And sure enough, it went up to 22 uh, by by the next day. So um, I think that a ban on assault weapons is um, a a really easy move. I don't know why Uh, the NRA is um, so adamant about that it is not a weapon for hunting it is not a weapon for sport it is not a weapon for protecting your home it is a weapon for killing people that is used in the military and has no place in homes and you know there's an interesting argument that got made in the heller case of a, a supreme court case in washington dc about gun control where the supreme court articulated that gun rights are an individual right not tied solely to the militia which is sort of mind-boggling in light of the plain language of the textualists. But, you know, you think about um, originalists who uh, want to interpret the Constitution as it was written in 1791. What were arms in 1791? The most commonly used weapon in the American Revolution was a a single-shot musket. That's what they had in mind. If if everybody wants to have a single-shot musket, bless them. That'd be fine. You can use that to hunt. You can use it to protect your home. I don't think they had any thought about these street sweeper weapons that could kill 22 people in a matter of seconds.
1: Yeah. And of course, there's, you know, there's a, been a big legal debate about this, and I encourage people who are interested in it to go back and, and look at what some um, uh, thoughtful jurists have said. Chief Justice Warren Berger called it a fraud being perpetrated on the Second Amendment, this kind of Broad definition of it as a as an inalienable individual right. Uh, John Paul Stevens, who who died recently, wrote an article in the Atlantic a couple of years ago, uh, which explained that the, you know the tr- the turn that uh, our view towards gun rights took during his career was was the the most disappointing difficult development that he looked back on and 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 felt bad about. Um, and of course, you know there 's another dimension to this. There was a really interesting article uh, that i that I came across in Scientific American a year ago talking about who owns the guns, and in the United States, three percent of the population owns fifty percent of the guns that 's two hundred million wow. guns and of that three percent of the population they 're mostly white males who largely, according to the study referred to in Scientific American. Uh, have racial fears, and so we sometimes disaggregate our race problem from our gun problem. But it's hard to do when you know who's got it, why they've got it, and what they're doing. Why, you know, who? Knew, why do three percent of the population need fifty percent of the guns in the United States? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very disturbing situation we've gotten into. Um, and frankly, one of the things that strikes me is that you can't. Solve the problem uh, unless you also address campaign finance reform. Donald Trump got $30 million from the NRA. There are multiple members of the Senate who've gotten $3, 4 $5, 6000000 million from the NRA. Um, that buys a lot of loyalty. And to the extent to which people you know, can, can advance the cause of their special interests by writing a check, you end up with problems like this one.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and intertwined with that problem, of course, is the problem of gerrymandering, where we've got, uh, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, uh, received, you know, more popular votes, and uh, because of the way the electoral college is structured and the way things are, districts are gerrymandered, uh, controlling the outcome of elections in a way that is against the wishes of most American people.
1: Yeah, so let me, let me switch the topic because we have a limited amount of time here, and I'm very grateful for the time you've taken. Another thing that happened today was um, uh, former acting FBI Director McCabe filed, filed a suit um, uh, saying that he was forced out of his job For political reasons, that there was actually, to use the president's favorite term, a kind of a witch hunt within the government to seek out people who are not loyal enough for the president and to push them out of office. Now, he's the second person to do this because the Peter Strzok suit also does the same thing, suggesting that um, uh, the the president was going beyond uh, his constitutional right to have people working for him who he'd like to have working for him. Uh, And was actually discriminating against people for political reasons. I'm just wondering, as somebody who has some familiarity with the law and with lawsuits like this and cases like this, you know, can that hold up? Can that argument uh, uh, hold up, uh, you know, uh, uh, against a president who is essentially weeding out his enemies?
0: Yeah, you know, it's really unprecedented. And so it's it's difficult to, to predict. Um, and I haven't read the lawsuit yet. But, you know, ordinarily, as long as there is some legitimate business reason for taking employment action for firing somebody, um, then if there is uh, an allegation that there was some other problem occurring, uh, you know, like a political motivation, um, usually the, the employment decision can hold. Um, and so I, I believe that he was Uh, terminated because of lack of candor. I don't know whether he has also alleged any procedural claims. On Peter Strzok's lawsuit, what struck me is the strongest claim in his lawsuit was his Fifth Amendment allegation that he was not entitled to his appeal rights which is uh, ordinarily permissible when you're denied due uh, you're not you, you can't be deprived of property without due process of law and so uh, what happened in his case is his recommendation was for a 60 day suspension and that decision was overruled to one of termination and so he had a right to appeal that to see if the remedy for his violations of the rules at the FBI was reasonable and he wasn't given that right of appeal you remember with uh, uh, that that he was, uh, he was summarily dismissed. And so I think he's got um, some room there um, with regard to McCabe. I don't know if he has a similar procedural issue. If it's solely based on uh, politics, that would be very interesting. Um, you know, in federal government, you can't have a political litmus test. One of the things that President George W. Bush got in trouble to, for in his administration was the hiring of DOJ lawyers based on uh, political party and political viewpoint that was the subject of an OIG investigation and I think one of the reasons for which Alberto Gonzalez ultimately resigned. And so I don't know if there is a legal remedy for it, but there may very well be um, political repercussions.
1: Well, speaking of politics, obviously the big legal matter that has political ramifications has to do with the uh, potential for impeachment uh, hearings in the House or an impeachment investigation followed by um, impeachment uh, formal impeachment hearings. Uh, and today there have been a couple of noteworthy developments in that regard, uh, one being that uh, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Representative Jerry Nadler of New York City, um, uh, came out as, as the 120th member of the Democratic caucus to be uh, actively in support of an impeachment inquiry. Uh, this suggests not only you know, that the momentum is continuing to grow within the Democratic caucus, but to have a member of the leadership um, and who plays a particularly critical role take this stance, which he has resisted uh, and which Speaker Pelosi has pushed against, uh, suggests we're, you know, entering a different phase of this. Uh, simultaneously, on or, uh, you know, on this... Set of issues, the Democrats are in court seeking to enforce their subpoena to get a former White House counsel Don McGahn to come and to testify. And he is seen as, in some respects, the critical witness, one of the most critical witnesses in making the case. Uh, I thought an interesting twist with regard to that is that the argument that the U.S. government was making was well, Don McGahn doesn't think anything illegal happened. Um which is sort of not his place. But I'm just wondering <laughs> wondering how you how, how you view these developments.
0: Yeah, you know, on the impeachment question, that's a political issue that uh I, I don't know much about, but I think in terms of enforcing the subpoena against McGann, it's an essential move by the House. They cannot allow the executive branch to just thumb their nose at Congress, or they really will weaken the institution. They served a subpoena. They are entitled to that testimony. Certainly, if he wants to assert executive privilege with regard to specific questions, he can do that, and they can fight out whether it's appropriate on a question-by-question basis. But to simply say, I'm not going to come, I'm not going to honor your subpoena, is really lawless. And I think um, to defend the institution and make sure that it's It remains as powerful as it is going forward. I think they have an obligation to enforce that subpoena. And on on the impeachment front, just as a matter of uh, the legal significance of it, um, they certainly are on stronger ground um, when they're seeking to enforce some of these things. If there is uh, an impeachment inquiry underway, I don't think it's essential. I've heard some people say they have to in order to get, for example, the grand jury material that's in the Mueller report. But it, it's certainly a stronger case. You know, there's some precedent from the Nixon era that a ju- uh, an impeachment hearing is a judicial proceeding. And the rules regarding grand jury material permits a court to disclose the materials to Congress if it is in a judicial proceeding or preliminarily to a judicial proceeding. And it held in a case involving, I think, Haldeman records that um, an impeachment inquiry was a judicial proceeding. So they're on stronger grounds there. And so I don't know whether Nadler's um, saying that he now favors impeachment is uh, a tactic to try to push forward in obtaining all the records they need, or you know if he's convinced that it's their obligation. And I, you know, I've heard a good argument from Adam Schiff, which is, you know even if the house decides to impeach and the senate decides to acquit ultimately um that may not be the decision uh, the decision point as to whether to go forward uh, again just drawing a line a, a marker that the president's conduct is unacceptable and having an impeachment for that, even knowing that acquittal might be possible, might be important just to defend the norms in this country about what kind of presidential behavior is acceptable.
1: Well, it's certainly something that we're going to watch very closely. We've almost run out of time. I do want to ask you one last question, um, uh, again, given your experience, uh, because when you were a U.S. attorney, among the things you dealt with were public corruption uh, cases, including notably one involving the mayor of Detroit. We now have speculation uh, fed by the White House that the President of the United States is going to commute the sentence of Governor Rod Blagojevich of Illinois. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, obviously he may not do this, although the, the current signs are that he might do even within the next couple of days. Um, what kind of message this sends in terms of public uh corruption cases in the United States and um uh, you know it it I you know perhaps the president is 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 trying to send the message that we need to be lenient on the corrupt um but I'm just wondering what your thoughts were on this if you have any
0: Yeah it's very interesting I mean number one this is not the first time he's mentioned a potential uh, pardon or clemency or commutation for Rod Blagojevich, and I wonder, you know, if he's going to do it, why? Why doesn't he just do it? Why does he talk about doing it? And it seems like it's a trial balloon to get um, a response, maybe to try to see what the public reaction is to it, or maybe it is to um, kind of facilitate this argument that political favors are not crimes uh, in a very self-serving and cynical way because he wants to. Mm-hmm. Uh, be able to protect his own um, similar acts. I don't know. That's one thought. But um, I think it would be a terrible thing for there to be some sort of clemency for someone like Rod Blagojevich. Um, public corruption cases, I think, are among the most serious because they are in affront to our democracy. When we elect leaders, uh, we entrust them with a lot of power, and we entrust them to wield that power honestly with integrity on behalf of the people. And if they're out there, you know, doing things like selling a Senate seat for a profit um, instead of acting in the best interest of their constituents, it really has a devastating effect. Um, a judge in one of our cases here in Detroit put it very eloquently during sentencing of a prominent public corruption defendant when she said, um, it, you know, it really poisons public trust. It poisons government. Good people don't want to get involved in government anymore. Uh, honorable businesses don't want to do business with government anymore. No one believes that they should obey the law if the leaders themselves don't obey the law. And so it has a really corrosive effect on society. And I think it'd be very disappointing if President Trump were to grant clemency to Rod Blagojevich.
1: I agree. Thank you very, very much for that uh, uh, strong summary, but also for spending the half an hour with us. We really, really have enjoyed it, and hopefully, you will can you know consider coming back sometime because I don't think any of these issues are going to go away. And if it's not the middle of the summer, you might get to enjoy conversation with a number of the other folks uh, who regularly appear on this uh, on this podcast, which is growing rapidly in terms of its audience. Um, in any event. Um, Barbara McQuaid, thank you very much, and uh, and and we will uh, uh, encourage people to look for you uh, soon again on MSNBC and elsewhere.
0: Thanks so much. I enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you. Now we're going to move to uh, something that I promised in an earlier podcast this week, and that is um, we just completed a listener survey, and uh, you know I promised to uh, share with you the results of the survey. Uh, so that you might come to know who you are. Uh, uh, We've been doing this for a couple of years now, and the audience has grown and grown and grown. Uh, But what I think the headline for me from this survey is is that the relationship with that audience has grown in a way that's just remarkable. But rather than me telling you this, I thought I would do something a little different, and that is bring in my partner and colleague, uh, the president of TRG Media, the company that puts together all of these podcasts, Chris Cottonwar. Chris and I worked together at Foreign Policy Magazine. Before that, Chris was the circulation director at the Financial Times in the United States. He really understands the media business inside out. We are so lucky to have him at TRG Media. Uh, it has enabled us to grow to uh, the ways that we have and, and to look forward to a future in which we're doing, uh, events and new podcasts and new media. Uh, but of course the, the secret sauce is the relationship with you. And I, I thought I'd have Chris talk about that a little bit. So welcome, Chris.
2: Thank you, David. Uh, this is my podcast debut. I'm really excited. Usually you keep me locked up in a back room. Uh,
1: yes, there's a special silo for Chris, a padded, padded silo.
2: um, So just taking your point about the, uh, the audience, I think, uh, a few things I was really struck by, um, first is, is just the response. We had, uh, close to 500 respondents to the survey. Um, it was a mix of paid and, uh, and, and unpaid listeners, but so we had a good mix across our entire listening audience. And I think the, you know, the, sort of the main takeaway here was our audience is incredibly loyal um, and educated. So when we looked at how long or how much time uh, the listeners are spending with the podcast, uh, first 96% of the respondents uh, of our audience are listening to the entire podcast i, I, I think which is that, like
1: that's like twice the industry norm or something so it's, it's more than twice the industry norm
2: that's so. right that's right and 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 if you take that um you know and and essentially uh make it equivalent to the amount of time that they're spending with us every week. It's about two and a half hours. And, you know, if you look, in, because
1: they're listening to multiple podcasts, that's there, right. Cause right. we, we do
2: two or three podcast episodes usually every week. Um, so, so they're spending two and a half hours with us. Um, and, and if you kind of look at how much time people spend on a website per visit, it's, you know, four and a half, five, you know, maybe a little bit more than that. So they're spending two and a half hours with us. And-
1: so I just want to put frame this properly. If somebody goes to the New York Times or they go to the Washington Post, yes. the average length of a visit is four or five minutes. That's right. So if they went every day during the week, it would be 35 minutes.
2: That's right. That's right.
1: And And, and yet the listeners, the nerds, of deep state radio, well-educated, so they, they're smart, making a smart decision, actually spending two and a half hours that's, on
2: average. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, so, so an amazing level of engagement with the podcast. Um, the second thing that jumped out at me is the, the, not that our audience is actually educated because I, I would have expected that. But ninety percent of our audience has a college degree, and fifty-two percent of our audience have graduate degrees. Um, So, so they're incredibly um, educated across uh, the listenership. Um, The next point—that's
1: very intimidating.
2: It it is well, and, and I should read more before
1: each episode.
2: Well, interestingly, we we started uh, a few weeks ago the the new Slack community, and and some of those intimidating folks are are, are interacting with each other on a regular Wait, basis. Like,
1: tell me about the Slack community. What is that?
2: So we introduced a, and and I take the blame for this, but I wasn't checking the forums, uh, the member forums, and one day I saw a tweet from somebody saying is are you checking the member forums? I went to the member forums, and folks had posted things that I hadn't responded to. Um, and the difficulty with how we initially approached the forums was that you have to proactively opt in to get those uh, you know, notifications. So I looked at options and decided Slack was the best way to do this, because now I, I, I get notified um, about a post. Um, and you know, and so we sent we sent out to members um, a way to connect with the Slack community, and we have roughly 150 people that are interacting on a regular basis um, and on on various topics. They'll now, these are
1: members so you you can't be a me- you can't participate unless you're a member.
2: Yes, this is a member specific. Uh, well, it
1: must cost a huge amount to be a member, so you get that benefit. It's probably thousands of dollars a year.
2: It is so expensive to become a member you can become a member for as little as ten dollars a year we offer a 25 dollar option which by the way is the minimum to be part of the slack community and then we have founding insiders who pay uh fifty dollars a year and with that you 50,
1: you 50 they pay all that's like four dollars a month that's like a like a latte or something
2: it's 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 a latte a month um, and with that, you get a Deep State Radio mug, and we ship that to you for free. And there are other member benefits that you know you get discounts on swag and uh, free shipping on on purchases. The ability to participate in the Slack community, um, and we'll be continuing to introduce new features because one of the other great things about the reader survey that or the listener survey that we we were able to uh, get was our about 250 people who responded to the survey also gave us uh, open-ended answers to you know what can we do better, and, or and or do they, do they have additional suggestions? And it was really helpful for me um, to hear. You know, I think some of the some of the core themes and you know things that I've communicated with some of the listeners on are focusing on audio quality, which we will be laser-focused on. Um, It's very important to us. But there's also a kind of thirst for being able to engage with the hosts of the show in various ways, and the Slack community is one of those ways. Um, But opening up the podcast, for example, so that we can take questions from listeners or having, uh, having the hosts do sort of a member shout out here and there to to thank people for their support um or live events which which is something that we're we're going to be doing as well thought there was an incredible um and you know comments here and there of course were you know keep up the great work but we we tend to focus on the you know areas of improvement and you know that's that's what I'm taking to heart I I really want To improve the, especially improve the membership experience, um, and ensure that the listening experience is what it needs to be as well. But overall, I was just floored by, you know, the the incredible response um, rates, the you know the amount of time that people spend, the listeners, um, and and one other interesting point, the we we asked some demographic questions at the end of the survey, and age was interesting in in that while it was very evenly distributed across uh age bands so we did 30 to 39 40 to 49 20 to 29 um the the 60 and over was slightly higher than all of the rest of the uh age groups um which which you know was surprising to me given sort of some of the you know industry you know metrics saying you know people younger people are listening to podcasts and that's just not true. We're 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 listened to by younger people and older people, which is which was a really interesting finding. I think.
1: Wait wait a minute. You're saying people that are over sixty are older.
2: I'm I'm, not, I'm saying there.
1: What wow. I, I just think we're going to have to draw this to a close. Um, you know it's very hurtful to those of us. Who are not in the same bracket as you are?
2: Well, I I, I am approaching fifty, so I got I got to deal with that. And uh, you have a lot more hair than I do. Yeah,
1: well, that's a good point, and I thank you for pointing that out. Um, I thank you for doing all of this. I think it's fantastic. I, you know, when we, as, over the course, you know, this is sort of summertime, and we get back, we will announce. Uh, a monthly event in new york city at the comedy cellar we're going to do a series of debates every month from now through the election on the big issues of the election deep state deep dives Um, and we are going to do some larger events in washington and new york uh that are going to sort of you know bring the nerds together with the kind of people who appear on the podcasts on deep state radio on national security magazine on uh uh unredacted on 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 this deep state live pro- podcast and so forth and so you know that you know be kind of a you know wonk fest you know it'll be comic con i don't know if there'll be like cosplay or something like that um although maybe you know the, the you know the washington dc cosplay could be really something that's right um uh but the 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 the, the Reality is that we're just about to expand, but almost everything that we do, whether it's a new podcast or this Slack thing or uh, uh, video programming or the live events in uh, in New York or the bigger conferences, is going to have as the central element engagement, more engagement between us and them, uh, and that's trying to be responsive to the survey and. Um, you know, we encourage you, go become a member, go to the DSRnetwork.com, sign up, click become a member, one of these membership levels, uh, one latte a month, and you know, join the Slack, join the conversation, help shape the show because we can evolve, we can create new podcasts, we can create new kind of content, uh, and we want to do it in response to the feedback that we get from all of you. I think one of the other things that's kind of great is this is an audience that is not DC centric, right? It is across the country and around the world. We have a very broad worldwide audience that has grown and is much, much larger than most of the other podcasts that are in this uh, foreign policy, national security space. That's correct, right?
2: Yes, that's right. That's right.
1: So... Go sign up, listen in. Uh, uh, Some of you had expressed interest in hearing about this uh, listener survey. And so now, now, now you have, thank you to Chris for joining us. Come back soon.
2: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Like to have you like to, like to have you on the podcast again. I think it was great.
2: I just like to add to, to, to the listeners. Thank you for all the feedback. We really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and, and, and the AirPod uh, winners were emailed, so you, you should look for that email as well.
1: Yeah, we'll do more contests like that where you can actually win something by uh, connecting with us, uh, so that'll create even more incentive. So, great conversation with Barb McQuaid, great conversation with Chris Cotmore. great to interact with you via the survey, and we look forward to you joining us again next week on... Deep State Radio, Deep State Radio Live, National Security Magazine. We have actually two upcoming episodes next week that are outstanding high-level episodes, uh, unredacted podcast. So we've got a lot for you. Go there, uh, join up, be a member, help support the growth. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today